1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Immediately, we have to put our text in its context. Paul has been writing about the place of prayer in the church. Now Paul is going to address the issue of the place of women in the church. In the first chapter, Paul spoke of the discipline of sound doctrine. And now Paul deals with the discipline of prayer and public worship in chapter 2. The passage is, of course, the focus of fiery debate and deep division. The subject of authority is immediately challenged. Does Paul have the right to speak to this issue? Does Paul's view of women and the place of women in the church, is it counter or contrary to the Old Testament revelation or the New Testament Jesus? Let me be clear. For those who would pit Paul against Jesus on the subject of sin or the subject of salvation or the rule of leaders or the role of women, they find themselves in a difficult situation and will find little comfort from the revelation of scripture or from the teaching of the church fathers or from me. Paul knows false teachers and legalists will not be happy with his conclusions about false teaching, about legalists. They're not going to be happy about Paul's other teachings. Paul has mentioned the issue of prayer in verses 1 and 2. We pray for all in verse 1. We pray in the will of God in verses 3 through 7. Now Paul is going to make mention of the role of women in public, that is, in the church, but also in private in verses 9 through 15. Paul is going to address in brief the issues of apparel in verses 9 and 10, attitude in verse 11, prohibitions in verses 11 and 12. And Paul's then going to give the reason for the prohibition in verses 13 and 14. In brief, Paul speaks of women's responsibilities in verses 9 through 11, the restrictions in verses 12 through 14, and then the subject of redemption in verse 15. Are Paul's instructions consistent with the revelation of God in the Old Testament? Are they consistent with the character and the commands of Christ in the New Testament? Are these suggestions, opinions, observations, which the church is either free to take or leave. One of the key words in this epistle has repeatedly been the words charge and command. We saw the word charge and command in chapter 1, verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 18. We're going to see the word charge again in verse chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7, chapter 6, verse 13 and 17. It carries with it the idea 
order. Order in the sense of a communication that is handed down from one officer to the soldiers. The risen Lord Jesus entrusted Paul with the gospel. And Paul is entrusting the treasure of the gospel to Timothy and future leaders in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul encourages women to exercise modesty, humility, purity, industry. In verse 9, industry in verse 10, humility in verses 11 through 14. And so again, for the critic who insists that Christianity demeans women or restricts women or imposes barbaric and archaic roles on women, they have to ignore what the Bible says. They have to ignore what Jesus says, and they have to ignore the history of the church. Let me be clear. Some people have perverted and distorted the Bible's teaching in order to abuse women. Perverse and distorted teachings never reflect the heart of God or the word of God. The Lord Jesus and Christianity has done more to elevate women, particularly in the ancient world, than any singular source that we're aware of. So this epistle was written to Timothy in Ephesus, which you'll remember was the home of the worship of Diana, or to the Romans, Artemis. It was a, a cult that paid particular attention to the role and, and the relationship of women in the culture and in the society. So Paul is going to remind and emphasize the principles of headship and authority in the local church. Jesus is the head over his body, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. The headship of the pastor over the flock, he is talked about in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And the headship of man over woman is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And again, here in chapter 2, verse 12. So we dive right in where we left off in the text in verse 9. Women in public, in like manner, Paul writes, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. In the previous passage, you'll remember the context. Men are to lift up holy hands. Now, what did that mean? They were to lift up holy hands of transparency, humility, selflessness, obedience in Christ. And so when Paul uses this expression, in like manner also, what does that mean? That just like men are to demonstrate their character and their transparency and their obedience to Christ, women also are to exercise and demonstrate their character virtues. And what are the character virtues? Modesty, purity, humility. Here Paul isn't insisting that women shop in secondhand clothing stores or adopt the ancient version of thrift shops or that women have to avoid Roman clothing fabric shots. This is, not, this is not a passage that says, well, what if I shop at Kohl's? And I have Kohl's cash right now in my purse. Is Paul forbidding that? Paul is not condemning clothing or women wearing clothing. As a matter of fact, the Bible encourages women to wear clothes. The passage isn't condemning 
having braided hair or even wearing jewelry. The point of the passage is about purity and modesty. And so Paul's point becomes in part, how do women communicate the internal characteristics of transparency and modesty and purity? He's basically saying by their outward adornment. Paul is going to talk about modesty and propriety. And so the person who wants to push the limits are automatically going to say, well, modest by what standards? What constitutes propriety and modesty and decency and good sense within the culture? So Paul is going to admonish women and remember the context. It's the church setting. It's the worship setting. And so part of the point becomes you should dress in such a way that reflects your commitment to Christ and your character in Christ. So Paul consciously is going to use the terms propriety and moderation. So when you're reading the text, I want you to be able to literally look at the text and ask the question, Paul, Paul, what is it that you're concerned about? Paul is concerned that women aren't to draw undue attention to themselves. In that particular culture and society, it wasn't unusual for women to have lavish hairstyles and pearls were, were precious ornaments that were used to draw attention to themselves. Women in the church were not to give themselves over, one writer says, to ostentation, to costly attire, to excessive adornment. Neither was seductive or sexually suggestive clothing appropriate. They were not to detract from the worship service by drawing attention to themselves, unquote. That's part of the point. But imagine the protest. What, what are you saying? What are you saying? Are you saying that Paul condemns beauty? And the answer has to be, of course not. What the Bible condemns is emphasizing outward beauty over inner character. That's what's, at, that's what's at stake. It is tragic. It's a tragic fact that some men value external beauty over inward beauty. It's also a tragic fact that some women dress not so much to impress men, but to impress other women. And so the point of the passage is dress in such a way, not that you're drawing attention to yourself or to impress men or to impress women, but the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you look reflects your character, knowing that it's God who doesn't simply look on the outside, but God judges the heart. And so in verse 10, when he says, but, that's an adversative, that is, in contrast, that which is proper for women who profess godliness, which then are expressed in good works. And so the word translated godliness is in fact a word that means godlikeness. In what sense? In the sense of the character of Christ. In the sense of the fruit of the Spirit. The sentence makes women who profess godliness demonstrate that godliness in the way in which they conduct themselves with good works. And I'm going to suggest here that this word good works probably means industry. And by industry, it means the way that the women work throughout the day 
or the way they conduct themselves in what they actually do. So in this letter, Paul will later condemn women who wander from house to house, who give Satan the opportunity to lead them into sin. The implication is that women in the ancient world would sometimes go from house to house to house in a never-ending series of gossips. Remember back in those days, they didn't have daytime television. So you had to get all of your drama from the neighbors. So in a real sense, Paul is pointing out the fact that the most powerful teaching and preaching comes from the way that we live our lives. I think most of you know that. Most of you intuitively know that the most effective preaching isn't taking place from this pulpit. The most effective preaching is how do you live your life in the real world? How do you conduct yourself in your relationships with one another? So the reader is invited to ask the question, how does my appearance enhance my ability or limit my ability to represent Jesus Christ? How does my appearance cause people to ask and answer the question about what I believe about God and what I believe about Jesus? Does your appearance incorporate the elements of modesty and purity and submission, and respect for the lordship of Jesus Christ. So in the biblical worldview, beauty begins on the inside and then makes its way to the outside. Elegance, grace, humility, confidence in Christ Jesus gives the glow that no makeup can provide. My pastor, Chuck Smith, used to be, talk about this particular passage. Can women wear makeup? And he famously said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> I don't think he meant it to be like an insult that you look like a barn. Let me go be clear here. Look, ready, ladies? Christian women are not called by Christ to be unattractive. You mean there's biblical reason to be attractive? Yes. <laughs> ladies, it's okay to be attractive. It's not a sin. Otherwise, Mary, you would be in perpetual sin. The Christian woman's measure of beauty is not in the clothes that she wears or the color or the shape or the texture of her hair. Rather, beauty is found in compassion and care exercised in grace as you minister to one another. And so part of the point that I want to bring out to you in this passage is there are no limitations. There are no prohibitions. There are no restrictions in what Paul calls good works. Ladies are free to do anything and everything in relationship to these good works. And of course, good works aren't what save you. And good works aren't what makes you beautiful. The good works are the evidence of the godliness of the character inside of you. And so now Paul switches to the subject of the women in church. And so as you're thinking about the passage and the flow of the meaning in its context, it's in that circumstance that Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now it's funny to me 
most people read this statement and immediately their attention is focused on silence and submission. They are important words, but they have to be considered in the context of the word learn or receive instruction. The word rendered let a woman learn here, learn, is a word that in its root meaning includes the idea of inquiry or observation. It's a Greek word that meant discipleship. And you've got to understand something. Think about this just for a moment. Let, let a woman learn. Not, not learn. Not remain ignorant. Not get an education. There's no prohibition or restriction about discipleship. The Greek word translated silence is hestukia or hesukia. The word is found in verse 2 and again in verse 12 when it says, let the woman learn in silence. The word means settled, calm, undisturbed. And there's an element in that word which means voluntary Restraint. There's another Greek word, sigeo, which means shut up and, and keep silent. So here, the implication is exercising restraint consciously. And so here, submission doesn't mean absolute surrender of mind or conscience or moral responsibility. Submission never ever meant subjugation or subordination to evil or corruption or immorality. When the Bible speaks of submission, it is never a submission to that which is wicked or corrupt or immoral. And so in verse 12, when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. These two words, we have to ask and answer this question. What do you mean? What does this mean? What does the Bible allow? What is Paul allowing and what is Paul prohibiting? In the context, under the heading of congregational ministry. The reason why I even have to bring that up is imagine as you leave this service. You get in your car, you head down Ken Carl and you're headed towards Wadsworth or you're headed towards Kipling. All of a sudden you see a Jefferson County cruiser come out and a lady with a badge and a gun comes out of the unit. And you say, according to the Bible, I don't have to submit to you. You're going to go to jail. I'll visit you in jail. I'll pray for you in jail. And I'll also ask that whoever the supervisor is for that lady, that she be, give, be given a raise or a commendation for pulling you over and taking you to jail. You need to know that you didn't learn that in church. The prohibition or the restriction isn't that you don't submit to ladies who happen to be in authority. Because here, the context is congregational worship. The Greek grammar allows the translation to read, to teach a woman. I'm not allowing. It completes the thought about attentive learning in verse 11. The women in the Ephesian church were allowed to learn in the worship setting, in the church setting, but not to teach or to exercise authority over men. These two concepts are connected in this particular way. Does the prohibition mean a blanket prohibition for women everywhere in all Christian churches to never teach under any circumstance? I'm going to suggest to you that it can't mean that because there are repeated instructions throughout the New Testament for women to teach, to teach other women, for women to exercise their godly 
and God-given spiritual gifts. So some have argued because of the culture and the condition of the church at the time that Paul saw this as some sort of necessary but temporary prohibition. Although there may be some merit to that argument, I think that the merit loses force in the reason that Paul himself provides later on in the passage as he gives the reason why he's saying what he's saying. Paul doesn't cite the temple of Diana. He doesn't cite even the presence of false teachers and false teaching for this prohibition or this restriction. For those who see a blanket prohibition, like I said, for women teaching men in every circumstance or all circumstances, it seems to ignore the New Testament's allowances for, for women to teach elsewhere. Paul commended his co-worker Priscilla who taught Apollos, the great preacher in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Paul frequently mentions other women in responsible leadership and responsible service roles. Phoebe worked in the, in the church in, in Rome, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Apparently, these twin ladies, Tryphena and Tryphosa, were the Lord's workers in Romans 16, 6, and again in verse 12, as were Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Again, is this prohibition a temporary prohibition, limited simply to the congregations that gathered in Ephesus? And I'm going to suggest to you that Paul is using the term authority, and it would seem to mean the sense of teaching and authority in the context of spiritual authority, hierarchical or administrative authority. Sometimes it means congregational rule or church governmental rule. And again, modern scholars are tempted to suggest that what Paul is regulating is the temptation for women and men to engage in some sort of gender struggle. They argue that Paul is making a limited cultural accommodation because the women in Ephesus are unlearned, unskilled, untrained. That these women didn't have sufficient training or knowledge in order to exercise the role of the teaching elder or the ruling elder. But I don't think the text or the context supports that view. John Frame, a theologian, writes, quote, Scripture, and only Scripture, has the final word on everything, all our doctrine, all our life. Thus, it has the final word, even on the interpretation of Scripture, even in our theological method, unquote. And the reason why I'm using that particular quote is because some people are going to be tempted to say, that's your interpretation. And I'm going to suggest to you, I think that there are two kinds of interpretation. Knowledgeable, thoughtful, based on what the text actually says. And not knowledgeable disconnected from what the text says. I'm willing to concede there is a cultural context. I'm willing to concede that in the ancient world, women and men sat in separate congregational worship. It isn't like our church right now. You see husbands seated with their wives, husbands seated with their wives, single women and single men seated together. There are men and women scattered throughout our congregation. But if you can imagine in the ancient world, everybody on this side of the auditorium were men and everybody on this side are women. In the ancient setting, you can imagine that Timothy is teaching or he's even reading the words of Paul and one lady cries out to her husband, Moishi, what is he talking about? What in the world is that man saying? And you guys are laughing because you can imagine. It's different if, if a husband or a wife is whispering in each other's ear, I think Gino's out to lunch. 
you're not necessarily going to disrupt the service. But if you cry out across the congregation, what's he saying? Paul wants to make sure that you don't interrupt the service. Now again, the point that Paul seems to be making is that women cannot occupy the role of the ruling elder or the teaching elder in the church. And for the person who objects, you have to be willing to explain away not simply what it says in verses 11 and 12, but you also have to explain away what it says in verses 13 through 15. Women aren't the only ones who are prohibited from occupying the role of the teaching and ruling elder. The reason why we know that is chapter 3, where it says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. But even in that particular role and relationship, there are prohibitions as it applies to men. Not every man is qualified to occupy the role of the ruling elder or the teaching elder. Some men are going to be disqualified in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And men and women and churches who ignore the prohibitions do so at their own risk. Paul's blanket prohibition and restriction for women to teach and to exercise authority over a man is given in the context of worship. But it's also given in the greater context of the fall and and false teachers, and false teaching, and church government. Warren Wiersbe's really helpful at this point. He says, quote, when the local church meets in assembly, the women are instructed to exercise submission. If they have any questions, rather than interrupt the meeting, they should ask their husbands at home. This rule does not prevent a woman from teaching or from leading in ministries that have been assigned by the local assembly, unquote. And again, almost always someone will ask, well, what if a woman doesn't have a husband? She doesn't have a husband that she can ask. What then? Well, apparently it means that you can ask the ruling elder after the service what you meant. So in verses 13 and 14, look what it says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Paul gives reason for the prohibition and the restriction. And the reason he gives the prohibition and the restriction is rooted in creation, according to Paul. So Paul says... And talks about Adam and Eve. And just as an aside, you'll note that Paul views Adam and Eve as real historical figures. Paul doesn't believe in gender fluidity. Paul doesn't believe that the roles of men and women are simply culturally determined. Men and women are made in the image of God. And some scholars suggest that Paul is appealing to the Garden of Eden to reflect what was happening in the church in Ephesus. Were some of the women usurping their husband's authority? Were some of the women intruding into the office of the teaching or the ruling elder? Was Paul suggesting in this passage that some women or most women are gullible and easily deceived, more so than some men or most men. I doubt that that's true. I think that Paul makes it clear that the real issue isn't gullibility. The real issue is humility, transparency, and submission. 
Paul placed the blame for man's sin in another passage squarely on Adam. So for the person who wants to read the text and saying, okay, here's why Paul is saying what he's saying. He's blaming the lady for the tragedy that is the fall. That can't be a true argument because in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, by one man, sin entered the world. Paul was well aware of the Bible's testimony concerning headship. The Lord God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam apparently told Eve. I'm going to suggest to you that there's nothing in the text that says God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the, not, from the, from the tree of good and evil. Apparently, Adam told Eve what God said. For Eve, the struggle wasn't simply whether or not to believe God. The struggle was in part to believe what her husband said about God. So let me repeat that. What was Eve's struggle? Would she submit to God by submitting to her husband? Eve was deceived by Satan. Adam's rebellion goes far deeper. Adam failed to submit to God. Eve failed to submit to Adam. Paul's argument for the blanket prohibition for women to occupy the office, office of the ruling and teaching elder, here's his, his, his argument. It's because of God's revelation on the subject of submission. This same argument could be made for the headship of Christ over the church. Jesus is the head over the body of Christ. The church must not usurp Christ's headship or authority. The pastor must not usurp the headship and the authority of Jesus. I am not in charge of this church. Jesus is in charge of this church. If I do something that is contrary to the nature and the character and the revelation of God, I am not acting as a spokesperson for Jesus. I am acting in rebellion and disobedience. I have no right whatsoever, ever, to tell you to disobey God or dishonor God or to act contrary to what the Bible says. Paul argues that Jesus is the head of the church, that he's the savior of the body in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul argues that the church is subject to Christ. Paul, let me ask you a question. Do pastors sometimes act out in ways that are contrary to what the Bible says? Yes. Do churches sometimes act in ways that are contrary to the revelation and the character of Christ? Sadly, yes. Paul argues that the church is subject to Christ and wives are subject to their husbands in everything, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24. So Paul appeals to the created order for the prohibition and also to avoid confusion and resentment among the pagans and among the Jews. In Paul's appeal, he points out that God assigned roles and responsibilities in the home and the church. These are lines of authority, and I need to be careful here. Authority does not always translate to superiority. There is an exception. Let me give you the exception. Is Jesus superior to every pastor? The answer is yes. Is Jesus superior to the church? Yes. Jesus' superiority doesn't extend to the Father or to the Holy Spirit. The Father is not superior to the Son, but the Son submits to the Father. The Father and the Son are not 
superior to the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit submits to both Father and Son. I'm going to argue that man is not superior to woman. But in the case of home and church, God's plan is that man exercises authority in the home. And ruling elders are to exercise authority in the church. The ruling elder's authority is not a claim of superiority. By the way, it's a losing battle and a lost cause to argue sexual superiority or gender superiority. But it remains a biblical truth that God created men and women with unique and complementary characteristics. So there are many views that a number of Christians and scholars have concerning the role of women. All the views hinge on your interpretation of this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. In short, there's three views. One is called the non-authoritative view. The second is the authoritative and absolute view. The third is the authoritative but culturally limited view. The non-authoritative view sees this as Paul's opinion. That this isn't God's opinion. Some go so far as to suggest it's an interpolation. That is an addition by an individual or some cabal of feminists. Uh, or, 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 or I shouldn't say that. M men who are misogynists. That's what I was trying to say. These writers suggest that whatever this passage means, it doesn't provide any meaningful prohibition on the role of women in the church. So some people read this and they go, you know what this means? Nothing. It's like the illustration that, that pastors use. Do you know what it means when a pastor looks at his watch? It doesn't mean anything. See, you're laughing because you know it does mean something. He knows he's, he's out of time just like me right now. <laughs> the absolute and authoritative position holds that women should occupy no role or exercise any spiritual authority over men. Whether as ruling elder, as pastor, or deacon, some go so far as to prohibit public or verbal prayer or teaching in a congregational or worship setting. Some even restrict women when it comes to missionary functions. The authoritative but culturally limited view holds that Paul is targeting the Ephesian culture and limits the role of women in that specific situation, but that the general principle still applies, but that it shouldn't hinder the gospel message. My own view is that women are called and gifted by God, by his Holy Spirit, to serve in a number of different roles and functions within the body of Christ according to the gifts and the callings that have been established by the Holy Spirit in the life of that woman. That the prohibition that Paul outlines in this passage is a prohibition for women to occupy the office of the ruling or the teaching elder. For those who would argue that office and function is an artificial construct, I would push back. The way I would push back is I would say, is it possible for the 23 plus Democratic candidates who are running for the office of president that they talk like presidents and walk like presidents and act like presidents and speak like presidents and they're doing everything that they think presidents should do. By the way, when you walk, talk, and act like a president, does that make you the president? In order to be the president, what do you have to be? You have to be elected. You have to be elected to the office. When a person is pursuing the office, they may do things that presidents do, and so it's different. Can women, do pastors pray? Can women pray? Yes. 
Does a, can a pastor visit a sick person in a hospital? Can a woman visit a sick person in a hospital? Does a pastor read his Bible? Can women read their Bible? Can pastors open the Bible and teach the Bible and say what they think that it means? Yeah. Can women open the Bible, teach the Bible, and say what they think it means? Yeah, what's the difference? The difference seems to be about government, authority, and rule. Authority and submission were never, ever meant to serve as a wedge to destroy God's order. The prohibition that Paul outlines in the passage, I think, is a prohibition to occupy the office of the teaching or the ruling elder. Authority and submission in heaven and on the earth and in the home is established by God. Can you imagine a child insisting on equal authority as parents and the child insists on submission from the parents. And I would know what some of you think. Well, yeah. But is it right? Is it right for a 10-year-old to tell mom and dad where they should live or what they should do or where they should go? According to the Bible, are kids supposed to submit to their parents or are parents supposed to submit to their kids? And look at women in private. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. What in the world does that mean? You're laughing going, yeah, what does it mean? Paul is speaking of women in general. In the ancient world, most women at some point marry and at some point have children. It may mean that Paul is making a reference to the curse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the idea being that godly women who walk in humility and industry and modesty are going to be delivered from the dangers of childbearing. Some suggest it's a reference to the birth of the Lord Jesus since the text in the Greek reads, quote, through the childbearing. That is, the special child, as one Bible writer talks about it. It can't mean that a woman is saved by giving birth to a child. Can you imagine if the Bible taught you're saved by grace through faith if you're a guy? And you're saved by grace through faith plus having a kid if you're a girl. Could the text possibly mean that? It can't mean that. Women are saved by grace through faith. Mothers who walk with Jesus in the will of God walk in the will of God. So those who argue that the curse of submitting to your husband was lifted with the coming of Christ, they make no such claim when it comes to pain and childbearing. And so Paul I think is pointing out that women are at their best in their God-given role of childbearing and child-rearing. One of the roles of wife and mother is to care for the family. And this seems to be the most persuasive interpretation in its context. The idea of marrying, bearing children, raising a family, fulfilling God's design serves as the best protection against the evils of cultural trends or the snares and temptations that were offered by the Ephesian society. We are saved by Jesus. Our testimony should speak loudly to the cultural claims that Christianity is absurd. Childbearing doesn't save. Faith, love, holiness, these are evidences of salvation. Women are to faithfully fulfill their role. Let me put it to you differently. Human beings are made in the image of God. You're to fulfill your role. 
women are to faithfully fulfill their role in childbearing, pursuing godliness, purity, industry, dignity. And again, whole books have been written to encourage women about their roles in spiritual service and worship and leadership. And I get it. I get it. There are people who are going to disagree with me. But what can we agree on? Let's pause for a moment. Can we agree that men and women are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone? Yes. Do we all agree that the Holy Spirit imparts supernatural and spiritual gifts to women and native talent? Yes. Do we all agree that women have permission to be beautiful? Yes, yes, yes. Do we agree that Paul's prohibition must mean something? It can't mean nothing. Women are called and gifted by God to serve the saints, to love their husbands and their children and the lost. Women are called to live lives of humility and holiness in private and in public. Women are called to personal discipleship and service without restriction. I have to stop. Lord, I pray that I won't be hit by lightning. But I also pray, Lord, that you will help us think about these important issues. That we will encourage one another and minister to one another. And as Paul says elsewhere, that we would be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. And so Lord, again, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.